Hello and welcome to Wangaratta Baptist Church. My name is Pastor Aaron. I'm so thrilled that you've decided to join with us today for this message. This message was recorded live at one of our Sunday morning services, which are on every Sunday at 10 a.m. right here in Wangaratta. If you're here uh, in town on a Sunday, then why not come along and join with us in fellowship with other believers as we open the word together and hear from the scriptures. But if you are connecting with us online, don't let this replace uh, coming to a, a local church. Uh, they are vitally important for the growth of all believers. And so get along to your local church. But if not, then, then at least help. let this be a supplement to help you in your walk with the Lord. And so we do believe that the, the scriptures are the inerrant word of God and they're here to train us and equip us. And so we will be speaking and opening up the scriptures together. So, so get your Bibles out and follow along. And I trust that this message that you are watching today will really encourage you and inspire you and help you understand the hope that we do have in Jesus Christ. May it be a blessing to you. Message today with a radical statement. A radical statement is this You are loved. That's the message that's at the heart of the New Testament. And that's the message that's at the heart of this universe. You are loved. See, many of us are familiar with the imagery of a cross. This cross right here is one that I made on a camp many years ago. They are uh, farrier's nails to put together with some jewelry, wiry stuff and then some nice leather and it used to go around my neck. Well, there used to be a clasp on the end, it's fallen off, you know. Kelly also made one. This is hers, lovely purple leather and purple bits, and that looks lovely too, and it's still got the clasp on, so um, yeah. But these are, these are crosses that we made. Now, you too have probably got a necklace or something somewhere in your home maybe, or might be wearing it or might have been given something or have it in a picture or something on your home about a cross. You know, our church logo features a cross. It's a cross matter dots, but it's still a cross. The cross is the symbol of Christianity. Now, growing up, I have seen the cross in many forms, in different ways, and in, in lots of different churches, and it's everywhere. If you've never been in a church or, or have never had an encounter with Jesus, it might seem a bit weird to you that we Christians would choose the instrument that killed our God to use as our symbol. Now, I'm not sure how much religious education you may have received at school. Lots of people had some form of RE. We got something. And you probably have come across this concept. Jesus died for the sin of the whole world. Now, whether that meant anything to us at the time is a different story. 
But if you read the Bible, you come across this verse in a book written by Paul to the church in Galatia, where he says, the son of God, that is Jesus, loved me and gave himself for me. It's as personal as that. And if you have been the only person in the world, if it was, there was just you in the world, Jesus would have died for you. He loves you that much. And if you understand that, it will completely change your life as it has mine. And that's what I want to talk about in this session today. Why does that change everything in life? When we grasp that and and experience it, why does it change? The Son of God loved me. This is God's love for you. God loves you so much. His love for you, it's unconditional. It's wholehearted and it's continual. And I don't know what you think of me, uh, think of when you think of the greatest love that you can imagine. Maybe it's boyfriend, girlfriend. Maybe it's husband, wife. Maybe it's parent, child. But the reason for the cross is this. It's God's amazing love for you and for me. But there's a problem. Because why? Why would it be necessary that Jesus would have to die? What's the problem? Well, we're all created in the image of God. And that means that we're all a masterpiece. There's something about every human being, something noble, something beautiful, something magnificent. Human beings are capable of such extraordinary creativity because we're created in the image of God and God is creative. They can produce great music, art, literature. Human beings are capable of great self-sacrifice, devotion, kindness, But there's also another side to the coin. We are also capable of bad stuff. You only have to open the newspaper, look at the news. You know, there are some terrible things going on around the world. There is evil going on around the world. But the world is more complex than just saying, well, those are evil people and those are good people because it's mixed. People who are capable of great love and devotion and kindness can also do some bad stuff. I've done some bad stuff in my life that I deeply regret. I've said some things that have hurt people deeply. I've done things that I deeply regret. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans puts it like this. He says, all of us have sinned. Now, sin... That's the kind of word that's changed meaning in our culture, I think, in recent times. It's almost become like a good word. One advert that I saw for ice cream used the slogan, it's so good, it's sinful. But sin in the Bible is the bad stuff. And Paul says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, all of us have sinned. 
And I don't know about you, but it can be hard to admit that we have done stuff that's wrong. And for some of us saying, I'm sorry, is almost impossible. It seems to me that it is human nature to shift blame to something else or someone else. We look around, we try and make excuses. I was amused to see some of the things people have written on their accident claim forms when they're trying to explain to the insurance company why they had the accident. One man wrote this, going home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree that wasn't there. Another man wrote this, the other car collided with mine without giving warning of his intention. Another person wrote this, the guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. (laughs) I'd been driving my car for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. 40 years is a long time to be driving in one city, isn't it? Someone else wrote, the pedestrian had no idea which way to go, so I ran them over. (laughs) And finally this, I pulled away from the side of the road glanced at my mother-in-law and headed over the embankment. (laughs) I'm sure none of you have problems like that with your mother-in-laws at all. But I think if we're honest, we've all done stuff that we know is wrong. And Paul says, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. John Collins was the vicar at Holy Trinity Brompton, the home of Alpha in London, from 1980 to 1985. He's now over 90 years of age. He's a very holy, amazing man, a very gracious, very loving, very kind, a very humble man. He also has a great gift of explaining the Bible. And sometimes a rather arrogant young guy would come to him and say, you know, I have no need of God. I lead a good life. So John would use this illustration. He'd say, Supposing there's a scale here on this platform of all the people who've ever lived, who would you put at the top? And they'd say, well, maybe Mother Teresa or their mother would go at the top, fitting for Mother's Day. And he'd say, well, who would you put at the bottom? They'd say, well, I reckon Hitler's probably right down there. Or maybe they'd put their boss there. Uh, Then John would say, well, I think you'd agree that we're all somewhere in the middle uh, between sort of up there and down there. Yeah, 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 of course. That's that's probably true. The, The guy would agree. John would say, well, what do you think the standard is? And the guy would say, well, maybe the standard's the ceiling. John would say, no, look at the verse. The standard's not the ceiling, it's the sky. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God was revealed in Jesus. And compared to him, we all fall a very long way short. So you might say, well, if that's the case, we're all in the same boat. What does it matter? Well, it matters, according to the New Testament, for these reasons. And I've put them under four Ps to help make them easier to remember. The first is the pollution of sin. The things we do wrong that spoil our lives. 
It's like the pollution of the environment, you know, is a big concern for many. But Jesus says it's possible to pollute your soul. The stuff that we do wrong can spoil our relationships. And then there's the power of sin, the bad stuff in our life, the bad habits. They're very addictive. Jesus says whoever sins is a slave of sin. You know, I once heard a guy uh, about a guy with a real sweet tooth and he brought home a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. He'd be popular if you brought them to my house. Now, someone in his household, whoever, who didn't have a sweet tooth couldn't even eat a whole one. I don't understand this, but they said it made them feel physically sick. And I'm like, poor person. They must have not appreciated the fat and, and sugar and carbohydrates and lovely fluffy lightness of a Krispy Kreme donut. I don't get it. And the person that brought them home said, well, yeah, they do make you feel a bit ill, but you kind of feel the only thing that might make you feel better is to eat another one. And, you know, I thought that's a great definition of addiction. It's the stuff we do that kind of makes us feel terrible, but we feel the only way to feel better is to do it again. That's one example of the power of sin. The third P is the penalty of sin. There's something within us that cries out for justice. When we see these kind of horrific things that are going on around the world, we say, that ought not to happen. They should be stopped. They should be brought to justice. As a driver sitting in traffic in Melbourne, I used to get really annoyed by all the motorcyclists who would zip up the, you know, in the middle of the lane between the cars, between all of us chumps, in cars who are crawling along at five kilometres an hour, used to really annoy me, like they were cheating. You know, and it was illegal for a very long time for motorcyclists to do that. And I admit that there may have even been times when I even personally, you know, might have just narrowed the gap between my car and the one beside me if I saw a bike in my mirrors. But then two things happened. The first thing, it became legal. And the second thing, I got my motorbike license. <laughs> and after riding a bike, it became clear how much safer it was on a bike to get out in front of traffic that stopped at lights rather than being in the middle of it. You know, my motto when I was riding a motorbike was to always assume that everyone was trying to kill me. And many times it seemed like it was completely true. But that's sort of how to ride a motorbike and not die. Just imagine every single thing is trying to kill you. It's often true. I used to get so frustrated and annoyed by lane-splitting bikes, particularly on the Monash when I'm crawling on it or on East Link. Then I became a lane-splitting bike. I guess you could say that's one example of hypocrisy. At the very least, it was a change in my standards. I used to judge people riding bikes who'd break the law by lane splitting and skipping the traffic queue, and then I became one of them. What Paul says in Romans 2 verse 1 is, You therefore have no excuse when you pass judgment on someone else, 
For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And for me, it's not just lane splitting. It's a whole lot of other things as well. Then the fourth P is the partition of sin. You know how it is when we've offended someone or, or someone has offended us. We don't want to look them in the eye. We try to avoid them because something's come between us. What the New Testament says is the stuff that we do wrong has caused a partition between us and God. That is, if you like, it's the bad news. But the good news is this. There is a solution. This is the solution. God loves you. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me and for you. God has come to this earth in the person of his Son to do something about it, to die for you and to die for me. That is the solution. The Apostle Peter put it like this. He himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins, that's your sins and my sins, in his body on the tree, on the cross, by his wounds you have been healed. Peter 2.24. If you like, it's been described as, as like the self-substitution of God. God substituted himself for you. What does that mean? In July 1941, a prisoner escaped from Auschwitz and as a reprisal, the Gestapo selected 10 men arbitrarily to die in a starvation bunker. And one of the men selected, his name was Francis Gajovnicek. It's not spelt Gajovnicek. It's Gajovnicek pronounced Gajovnicek. And when he was selected, he cried out. He said, oh, he said, my poor wife and my children, they'll never see me again. And at that moment, a little guy, a Polish man in glasses, wire frames, stepped out of the line, took off his cap and he said, look, I'm a Catholic priest, so I don't have a wife or children. I'd like to die instead of that man. To everyone's amazement, his offer was accepted and he was taken to the starvation bunker. And on the 14th of August, he was the last one to die. He kept up an amazing atmosphere, apparently. He got them singing hymns and praying. But on the 14th of August, they needed the bunker for other people and they gave him a lethal injection of carbolic acid and that's how he died. 41 years later, his death was put in its proper perspective. There in a crowd of 150,000 people, 26 cardinals, 300 archbishops and bishops, St. Peter's Square, Rome, in that crowd was Francis Gajovnicek. And the Pope said on that occasion about his death, the death of Maximilian Kolbe, that Polish 47-year-old priest who stepped forward to give his life, that was a victory like the one won by our Lord Jesus Christ because he gave himself, he gave up his life out of love. Francis Gajovnicek died at the age of 93 
And he'd spent the rest of his life going around telling everybody about the love of this man who died in his place. And in an even more amazing and wonderful way, Jesus died in your place, in my place. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me and for you. You know, the cross was the height of pain, the depth of shame. And yet the New Testament never concentrates on the physical suffering of Jesus because other people have suffered crucifixion. Even today, people are being crucified. What it focuses on was, the unique, was what was unique about Jesus' death. And that is that he was suffering spiritually because he was bearing on himself your sin and my sin, our guilt, our shame. There's a verse in the Old Testament which prophesied the death of Jesus and it goes like this. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 verse 6. I heard someone explaining this verse like this. He said, let this hand represent you and me. And let this book represent the bad stuff that we do that separates us from God. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to our own way. Let this hand represent Jesus. Jesus never did anything wrong. There was nothing between him and the Father. What this verse says is on the cross, the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He was bearing my sin, my guilt, my shame on the cross. And do you see that where, where, where that leaves you? It leaves you free to have a relationship with God because Jesus took it all for you. The cross is the result. The results of the cross, the cross and resurrection are really like one event. And it's like a beautiful diamond. You could look at it from so many different facets, all the different things that the death of Jesus achieved. God revealed how much he loves you. you now, guilt is feeling bad about the stuff we do. Shame is feeling bad about who we are. And Jesus bore our guilt and our shame. And you never need to feel bad about yourself in that sense because you are loved. Your worth is what you're worth to God. What are you worth to God? Jesus died for you. So you are infinitely valuable to God. And then Jesus revealed what true love is. True love is not just a feeling. Love involves more than words. It involves actions. And Jesus showed us the supreme example of love by sacrificing himself for you and for me. The answer to suffering is very complex. Why does God allow suffering? Theologians and philosophers have struggled for 2,000 years and no one's come up with a complete answer. 
But what the cross tells us is this. God is not sitting in a deck chair in heaven watching all the suffering down here. No, he has come into our world to suffer for us and he now suffers alongside of us. And then it tells us this, that evil has been defeated. The powers of evil have been defeated on the cross and that there's going to be a good ending The resurrection was not the reversal of a defeat. It was the manifestation of a victory. And it tells us that the story ends well. And then those four Ps we looked up, we looked at, they've been reversed. I'm going to take them in the opposite way to the way we first looked at them. First one, the partition has been removed. You can come home. You know, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.19 is that God was in Christ reconciling the world, that is you and me, to himself. See, the cross was not God sort of punishing an innocent third party. That would be barbaric. No, God was in Christ. God himself came to die for you and for me. God was in Christ reconciling you and me to himself. Reconciliation is amazing. This is a sculpture that Charlie Mackesy did of the prodigal son. That's what Jesus makes possible. This is a loving father welcoming his son with open arms, hugging Holding, loving, that's reconciliation. And reconciliation with God leads to reconciliation in marriage, in relationships between parents and children and in friendships. Then the penalty has been paid. The guilt has been removed. There's no condemnation. You know, the word that's used is justified. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. It's a term from the law court. If you were justified, you were acquitted. Now you might struggle to see how Jesus' death could really make a difference to you and me today. Well, this analogy might help. It's not a true story. It's just an analogy. There were two friends, friends at school, friends at university, When they left, they went their separate ways. One became a lawyer, very successful, became a judge. The other one went into a life of crime. One day, the criminal appeared before his old friend, the judge. And the judge had a dilemma. What was he to do? He loved this friend who had pleaded guilty to the crime because he'd done it. But he couldn't just let him off because he was a judge. He had to be just. That's God's dilemma, if you like. God is a God of justice. If there was no justice in the world, the world would be a a terrible place. But he also loves you. So this is what the judge did. He fined his friend the appropriate penalty 
say, $20,000. That was justice. Then he took off his robes and he went around to see his friend and he wrote out a check for $20,000 and gave it to his friend. That was love. And that's what Jesus has done in even more amazing terms because the cost was not just $20,000. It was his death on the cross. We were in a much worse situation. It needed a much greater solution. And if the love was far greater, it wasn't just for two friends. It was the love like a father and a son, greater even than that. Then the power of sin has been broken. Jesus said, if the son sets you free, if Jesus sets you free, you really will be free. I want to explain two theological words, justification and sanctification, because understanding these are important. Justification happens instantly. You are put right with God. You're made righteous. There's no condemnation, no guilt. Sanctification, that is becoming like Jesus. And that's an ongoing, lifelong process. See, then the pollution has been removed. There is continual forgiveness. John writes that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's so amazing. That's so wonderful. It's forgiveness. And when we've experienced God's forgiveness... It makes such a difference because when you are forgiven, you want to forgive. So many people, if someone offends them, they hold a grudge against the person. But holding a grudge is like letting the other person live rent-free in your head. It doesn't do them any harm. And if someone offends us, it's almost human nature that we want to get back at them by not forgiving them. But unforgiveness doesn't hurt them. Someone said, unforgiveness is like kind of drinking poison and hoping the other person is going to die. And when we've experienced God's forgiveness, we want to forgive. The hardest thing is to forgive ourselves. That can be really hard. It's much easier often to forgive other people than to forgive ourselves. But we have to forgive ourselves. Because otherwise, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, if God has forgiven us and we refuse to forgive ourselves, it's like setting ourselves up as a higher tribunal than God. God forgives you. Forgive yourself. And we forgive others because we have been forgiven so much. You know, forgiveness is a choice, but it's not optional. It's really hard. C.S. Lewis said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive and then it's really hard. But it really is true. The first to apologise is the bravest the first to forgive is the strongest and the first to forget is the happiest. 
Total unlimited forgiveness transforms all of our relationships. It transforms marriage, family life, friendships. Corrie ten Boom was an amazing Dutch Christian who during the war hid Jews from the Nazis. And when she was caught and arrested, as was her father and her sister, they were taken to concentration camps. Her father died and her sister Betsy, who went, into, who went with her to Ravensbrook, died also in that concentration camp. But amazingly, Corrie survived. And after the war, she went around just talking about forgiveness, this message of forgiveness. One time in 1947, she was in a church in Munich and when she finished her talk, this man came up to her and she recognised him as one of the guards in Ravensbrück concentration camp. He didn't recognise her, but she recognised him and she could remember his cruelty. And he came up to her and he said, thank you for your message, wonderful message about forgiveness. I have become a Christian and I know that God has forgiven me. I want to know that you forgive me. And he stuck out his hand and said, shake my hand as a sign that you've forgiven me. And Corey said, she just, just all, you know, all the memories flooded back of her sister dying, of his, his cruelty, they all just came back to her mind. And she wrote this. I stood there and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he, he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. I stood there with a the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole body, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I've never known God's love so intensely as I did then. God loves you with even more intensity than that. You are loved. The Son of God, Jesus, gave himself for you. When I understood that, it totally changed my life. And it's a gift. It's a gift that you receive by faith. And that's what we're going to be looking at next week. What is faith? But you don't have to wait until next week if you want to respond. If you want to receive the gift, if you want to receive that gift today, then after we've sung this next song, why don't you just come and have a chat with me? But I want to leave you with these words today. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me.
Let me pray. Dear Heavenly God, we thank you for the love that you have for each one of us and for the truth in the reality that we are loved. And we thank you that you gave yourself for us so that we might be saved by your love and that we are now justified and, Lord, we are now on a journey of sanctification for those who have experienced the forgiveness of God, which is available to each one of us. Thank you for that free gift that you give us. And, Lord, I pray that you would help those who have not come to faith in you, a faith that saves them, that, Lord, this might be another step closer towards you, Jesus. And that if those people who have today come to saving faith, even now, Lord, may we be able to celebrate that with them and uh, experience the amazing blessing together of new life in Christ. And so I pray this in your name that you would bless each person and that, Lord, indeed, we would deeply feel these words, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. It's that personal. That's how much God loves each and every one of us. We thank you for that. Amen.